This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, stackers, happy Wednesday and OG Monday was flag day. And I just thought that mom had a flag up, everybody had a flag up and uh, it was a great day, but I did not realize that it was flag day. So I hope you flew a flag out there. And on behalf of the men and women of Navy Federal Credit Union, a big shout out to the men and women protecting our country, like my nephew, Colin, and soon to be my nephew, Nathan who's going to start his training in the next couple of weeks. So a big Stacky Benjamin shout out to the men and women of the military from Navy Federal Credit Union and the Stacking Benjamins podcast team. Let's go stack some Benjamins together. Roll it. Hey, this is Andy Hill from the Marriage, Kids and Money podcast. And when I'm not singing Disney karaoke songs with my kids at home, I'm stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and why do you want the things you want? I ask myself that every time I pass a Dunkin' Donuts, so this should be interesting. Today, we'll welcome a man who's deeply studied the philosophy of wanting, Luke Burgess. Plus, a year after COVID, how's the world of credit rebounding? We'll talk to Matt Comos from TransUnion about their findings. And later, we'll toss out the Haven Lifeline to Julia, who was advised to get whole life insurance for her children in case they have issues getting insured later in life. Is that a sound strategy? And now... Two guys who are ready to lead you into the second half of the week, Joe and O G. And a happy Wednesday to you, Doug. Thanks for the intro. I'm Joe Salcihi, Average Joe Money on Twitter, and we are back and definitely ready to lead you into the second half of the week. Across the card table from me, ready to roar. Mr. OG. I'm particularly excited about today because uh, yesterday was our anniversary and uh, we have an annually renewable contract uh, that Mrs. OG is allowed to renew annually at her discretion. And 
I'm back in it for one more year. I made the cut, so I'm super excited. She decided to keep you. She has another 12 months for another 365 days. You know, when you get the one-year contract, they say you're a lame duck. You know, they talk about oh. lame duck managers and people that have no control. Is that you in the OG household? Since day one. That's maybe the way she likes it. Well, definitely the way she likes it. People now have an inside look at why you're so surly on these episodes. Just Why? Because every year I'm stressed about whether or not I made the cut? <laughs> yes, Absolutely. Well, the good news is you made the cut for today's show, and we're going to find out why people want so much stuff. You know, when you meet with people like, I want a boat or I want a plane, right? Don't know. Does that resonate? I never heard that. (laughs) I want, I want, I want. Why do we want this stuff? Like once we get past our basic needs, Luke Burgess wrote a great new book on that topic, and uh, we're about to have some philosophizing going on. It's a good one, two punch after Monday show. If you didn't listen to Ron Friedman talk about decoding greatness, if you want to be great and then you want to understand your urge to want things, man, this is the week. But first, we got a couple great headlines, including, I believe, hopefully, a call from Matt Comos at TransUnion about credit and how we did with our credit during the pandemic. But first, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Matt Comos from TransUnion, Luke Burgess, and why we want what we want. So let's get into our headlines. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline comes to us from Napa-Net. This is the National Association of Plan Advisors. There's this old adage, OG, that investors should sell in May and go away. I know you say that all the time. I'm all about selling. You're always like, uh, hey, let's get go to cash. Yep. And stay in cash and let's time the market. Wait until the correction happens. Yes. You find the upside down teacup. Wait for that. Don't get 13 fooled. candles. Don't get fooled by the first thing. Grab it yeah, when the, the, the triangles look exactly. good. The stochastics got to be just so. How'd the average 401k do? Well, turns out May was good, by the way, but not great month for the markets, but a bit better for the average 401k account. How about that? Hmm. If you have a 401k, and your average, here's what happened to you. First of all, the S&P 500 closed up 0.6%, closing stronger at the end of the month after a little week earlier, while the Dow Jones rose 1.9%, the fourth month of gains in a row, by the way, for both. The tech-heavy NASDAQ went down 1.5%, snapping a six-month streak of gains. But for the average 401k, what happened? If you were 25 to 34 or less tenured, you've worked at a place one to four years, uh, your 401k went up 1.4% in May. Okay, not terrible. I'll I'll take that. That's We're looking at a 14, 15% rate of return. 
If he annualizes, sure. Applying for some math here. Following a 4.7% rise in April, but you went up almost 5% in a month in April. This is according, by the way, to estimates from the Nonpartisan Employee Benefit Research Institute. And it's now up 13.4% year to date. So by now, you've already got 13.4 in your 401k. Mm -hmm. Sell in May, go away, right? Yeah, go to cash. Right, just all cash. And then hope like hell it doesn't go up anymore. And if you don't think we're kidding, by the way, people, we are joking. Hang in there. The average 401k of older age 55 to 64 workers with more than 20 years of tenure was 0.07% higher after a 3.9% bump the previous month. So in neither case did it go up percentage-wise as much as younger people's did. The two groups frequent divergence in results, that is the older cohorts, average balance is often larger, is generally more influenced by market moves than by contributions. On year Oh, year to date, the older cohort has gained 8.3%, showing that for older people, having that asset allocation correct, OG, really makes a lot of the difference where when you're younger, actually getting your butt in the market is the important part. Well, I mean, if you think about it, you have, let's say you've been working for a couple of years, you've got $50,000 in your 401k, and this year you put in another ten. That's 20% more money. Bam. You know, now I get it. That's not 20% return. We're not trying to do that voodoo math, but it's a 20% increase in your portfolio. And then that grows a little bit. By the time you get to having a million dollars in your 401k and you put that $10,000 in, you know, that's 1%. And then, and then the, you can probably hear the lawnmower, uh, Doug always goes out he's, most. He's he starts, like, starts the show. He's like, I got, well, he's doing his chores. Goes, that is true. You know, I mean, we, yes. somehow we've got him to do all of them. So I, I don't think we should complain too much about anything. <laughs> it's it's like, hey, it's your week to do dishes again, Doug. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's true. It's your week to take the trash out again, Doug. Like, really? I thought it, I had it last it week. It really is great. The yeah. string of days in a row. Yeah. Like, it's not that he did it once. It's that we got him to do it yeah. nine years in a Every row. Every day. Yeah, he does yeah. it all. So anyways, I don't know what the hell we were talking about. 401k, but, uh, 401k returns. And you know how much though, if you're putting money in your 401k, do you need to pay attention to the market and the fact that we've had a pretty damn good first part of the year, OG? Well, I think what this tells us is if it gives us anything, it gives us information about what the next six months might be. You know, when I look at the stock market returns and I go, well, for the last six months, they're up 13% or whatever number you just said. That's that's better than a year's return, right? Well, that's well, well that's that's just the average 401k balance, so that's going to include and that's for younger workers. So that's going to include people stuffing money into their 401k. Okay. But even so, the S&P's done really well in yeah. the last 6 True. months. Yeah. You know, tech stocks haven't, but small companies have and that sort of thing. So you look at that and you say, well, if my portfolio is up a whole bunch or let's say the market's doing really well over a short period of time, and you just kind of think about that from a average mean, you know, return to the average type of concept, it kind of stands to reason that we might be in for six months of no return, but that's perfectly fine. You know, there's going to be wide variations on those year to year, month to month returns, but that's the nature of investing. The longer out we go, the more time frame we put behind it, say 10 year returns or 15 year returns or 20 year returns, the smoother those returns get. So I look at this and I say, hey, this last six months have been great. I'm okay with the fact if the next six months are flat. 
because then that evens out to a great year. That's how I would think about it. Yeah. And, and you know what, if the stock market goes down over the short run and you're one of these younger workers, you should be celebrating because really what you want, OG, when you're younger is just volatility, right? You want it to trend up over time, but over short periods of time, you want that volatility down so you can buy more uh, cheaper. So yeah. volatility is good. Volatility is bad when you're getting ready to pull money out. Well, that's true. Or when you get later. But even so, I would say it's okay from a long-term standpoint because volatility gives us the opportunity to rebalance. So as you get older and you, you know, you're know you talking about those people that have a million dollars in their 401k, you're not making a big difference on your contributions anymore. You have a built-in dollar cost averaging strategy because if you're diversified and parts of the stock, your stock portfolio go up and parts go sideways or down, what are you doing? You're rebalancing. You're going to take the winner's sell off some of the profits, buy some of the not-so-winners. Do we call them losers? <laughs> Trying to be positive here. Buy some of those suckers at the bottom. And, uh, you know, that's your dollar-cost average strategy when you're only putting in your st- still 10000 10, bucks or whatever it is, uh, but you've got that five, six, eight hundred thousand million dollar portfolio. It's it's allowing you to still benefit from that along the way. We talked to Emily Guy Birkin a few weeks ago about the five years before your retirement, and actually, uh, there was a stacker out there that wrote to me and said that it was a great episode because she's five weeks away Ooh, from nice. retirement. But if you're five weeks away from retirement, or a year away, or two years away, you talk about how much you like an an all stock portfolio. A year or two away, do you take a couple of years' money inside your 401k if you don't have it elsewhere and lock that down like a day like today? Do you lock that down into the cash account in the 401k even before you leave? I think that's what makes having all stock or heavily a, a heavy stock-based portfolio realistic because you you have to – here's the big stress when it comes to – Stock volatility, like you said, during your accumulation phase, nobody cares. But when you start taking the money out, what are you scared of? You're scared of the market crash and having to take money out. When you see the portfolio go down and you have to take money out because you know you got to put food on the table, that's the double whammy. When you're working, you just go, well, eh, I, yeah, I just kind of keep yeah. working another few years. So how do you avoid that sort of you know, gut check moment of... I had a million dollars, took out my 40 to live on, and now I've got 800 because the market went down a whole bunch. Well, the way that you avoid that is you have to have a considerable amount of money in cash. Two years is what we recommend. And if you have two years in cash, you're not going to be able to time the top. You're not trying to pick the bottom. You're just going to pre-establish in your mind when you're going to stop dollar cost averaging out of your retirement portfolio and go all the cash for those distributions for the next two years. And statistically, that's given you the best chance of success over the long run because, you know, we don't know when those peaks and those troughs are going to happen, but we know that th- when they do happen, they're roughly in that 24 to 30 month range. And this is also why you start with the end in mind because you got to know how much cash you're, you want to have, right? Because you don't want to overdo the cash, but you also don't want to get caught short and uh, having to go to your stocks when they're down. Yeah, that's why you have to have a couple of years worth of cash at the right time. Start with the end in mind. And in our second headline, TransUnion just released its Q1 2021 Industry Insights Report. You know, we've looked at COVID from a lot of different aspects. We've looked at wealth building. We've looked at how we fared with regard to our debt overall. But in terms of our credit, 
Well, who better to talk to than Matt Comos, Vice President of Research and Consulting at TransUnion. Matt, welcome back to the show. How have you been? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I think the last time we spoke was maybe the was the end of 2017 or 18. I can't I remember, but how things have changed pretty significantly <laughs> since that time. <laughs> it's, I don't know what you're talking about. I've got no idea <laughs> what you're talking about. Well, let's talk about this. I mean, you guys have some great data. Tell me a little bit about the Industry Insights Report. First of all, for people that don't even know what this is about and what your, what data were you after? Yeah, so our Industry Insights Report is something we've actually been creating for almost a decade now. And, you know, the benefit that we have at the Credit Bureau is we get visibility to every credit active consumer. So the purpose of our report is to really get a, a pulse on what's happening in consumer credit. You know, we focus in on kind of the primary products of credit card mortgage personal loans and auto loans, but we also look at things like private label credit cards and HELOCs, you know, the landscape of credit products. And and we often, you know, we start with the basics. How are originations faring? How are balances looking? And what are delinquencies looking like? You know, those are kind of where we start with trying to understand what's happening in consumer credit. And it gives us that insight on a regular basis as to what's going on. I want to start with the doom and gloom stuff since you said delinquencies over the past, uh, well, not just the Q1, but over the past year, how have delinquencies changed? Because as you know, as well as anybody, that's something we were all worried about was, you know, the people that are being left behind. Many lenders and just for sure, our TransUnion included, were concerned about, to your point, how are folks going to fare now? What's been happening is, you know, kind of the combination of government stimulus, unemployment benefits, which essentially acts as a stimulus that has provided cash to consumers. In addition, many lenders have provided hardship programs, accommodation programs. So, you know, I might not have been paying my mortgage for the last year, which has not only you know helped my delinquency on my mortgage, but it's allowed me to pay my other bills. So what we've been seeing in general is actually delinquencies have been relatively suppressed across these major products. We haven't seen them come up yet. That's something we're keeping an eye on. We want we are anticipating there's going to be some deterioration of credit, but not to the level that we might have expected with the economic shock that we just experienced. I mean, that's, it's been kind of uh, surprising. Just if you think about overnight, unemployment went to over 14%, right? And uh, when we think about consumer credit, how a consumer pays their bills is, do they have a job and do they have the income to support the debt they carry? And as of right now, the government response has been pretty significant and has helped keep the consumer afloat. So we haven't really seen much in when we think about and look at the, those delinquency numbers. Boy, that's fantastic news. Next, when it comes to credit cards, oh, gee, my co-host and I, Matt, we always joke that when the stimulus money came out, we were sure people were going to use it to make a new boat payment, right? They were, they were going to go and take out new debt and get themselves into trouble. But you haven't seen that to be the case. Credit card balances doing pretty well, people paying down their debt. Yeah, it's been amazing to watch. I mean, if you think since the last recession, credit card balances have been on this growth trajectory. You know, it it has moved in concert with the economic recovery we had been seeing. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hit. I think what's different about and the dynamic at play is, 
you know, consumers went into lockdown mode. They not only were they not traveling for work or business where a lot of spending happens, they were also not really spending a lot at local restaurants or going to the movies or things that they normally would do. So as retail spending kind of came down, so too did the spending from a credit card perspective, which also, by the way, helps minimum payments, right? So as the balance comes down, I owe less, I have to pay less. So it's been a very, I think, conservative approach from the American consumer. Now, the reality is, I think many consumers were, they were in a state of like uncertainty, right? Like sure. They, you know, many of us, didn't, we didn't know what the heck this thing was and what was good. If I think back to like April of last year, um, now, for sure, there are some consumers that are still challenged. They've been faced with hardships. And, you know, if they're still unemployed or, or haven't gotten those hours back, they're still struggling and they might be using their credit card to make those day to day purchases. But generally, we have been seeing those balances continue to come down. Mortgage originations, obviously, still up. And we've talked about that. But the bigger thing I want to talk to you about, Matt, because we know that people are struggling to get a car, right? In fact, our friend Clark Howard uh, said on his show recently, if at all possible, don't buy a car now because you're not going to get a good deal, whether it's a new car or a used car. You have seen some news about auto lending. Tell me about that. There has been a resurgence or kind of a rebound, at least from a willingness for, you know, lenders have become more willing again to get active in the lending market. But what we saw early days of the pandemic was that really large drop in originations. Now it's interesting because the actual auto supply piece of the equation is having this impact. So it's a great point because as supply gets constrained, of course, prices go up. So it's harder to get a new car. That means your used car values are going up. Uh, The question becomes for a lender, you know, can I be comfortable making this dollar loan for the consumer, even on a used vehicle? So we've seen that willingness to lend has come back. We've seen that average loan amounts are going up. So they're kind of moving in concert with those higher prices. The question becomes, does that supply issue get resolved where new cars come back to market, you know, sometime soon, hopefully. (laughs) Man, I'll tell you. Yeah. Hey, this may be your and my first pandemic, but it clearly, Matt, is not your first rodeo when it comes to to markets and things changing. If interest rates begin moving up, what what do you think happens to the state? You know what? Without even having to to look into a crystal ball, because nobody has one, Matt, let's ask it this way. Historically, when interest rates have come up, what has happened to all this good news we have here? Does it get worse or does it change from market to market? It, it's really going to depend on, you know, there's a, there's a lot of factors that kind of go into that question, right? It depends on the assets that a consumer is holding. It depends on the levels of debt. And, you know, for a consumer that took out a fixed rate loan, there's really no effect, right? So if you were able to refinance your mortgage and get into a lower rate, you're on a relative basis, you're doing much better. You still are using cheaper money, you know, quote unquote, but if you have a you know a variable rate products a credit card now you start to have fluctuations in your payment amounts so what can happen right and and obviously many economists are concerned about inflation so the cost of credit can start you know that starts moving upward so what can happen for some consumers is if today they can afford a certain good or service or they can utilize debt to pay for that good or service because of the interest rate 
keeping their payment lower, it might not be as affordable as interest rates start going up. So that becomes just a question, you know, something that we look out for to say, can that consumer still utilize credit if they have the capacity to use it? That good or service just might be have become much more expensive. So just as we saw on the flip side, as interest rates came down, consumers that were maybe on the fence about buying a home, it now became a very good option because right. that monthly payment was affordable. It goes the other direction, right? When as interest rates go up. So something we'll keep an eye on to understand how that is impacting the consumer decision-making. Boy, a great time, not only to make your changes to your credit, to lock in those low rates, but also to get your overall financial health in order if you're able to. Matt, I would guess, call me strange, but I think you might know a place where people might be able to get a hold of some tools to maybe look at their credit or maybe look at some of this research that you have. Yeah, if uh, I... I you are not wrong about the fact that I have some good resources <laughs> for consumers. If you go to transunion.com and, and there's various areas within our website, we do have a whole research hub, um, transunion.com forward slash research. We actually have an area specific to this industry insights, transunion.com forward slash IIR. But also to your point, you know, go in, check your credit, know what's going on with your credit, understand, you know, where your credit score is at, make sure that there are accounts that you didn't open on your credit report. All those things are still and even more so, right, as we've kind of transitioned to this more digital and, and online virtual kind of way of doing business, it becomes even more important for consumers to really stay on top of those things along with their overall financial health. Absolutely. Well said, my friend. And by the way, if you miss those links that Matt said, uh, we've got your back. We've got them at our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. Matt Comos, thanks for taking a few minutes out of your busy day to talk credit with us. As usual, I really appreciate it, my friend. My pleasure. I'm, I'm always happy to return to Stacking Benjamins. It's a great podcast. Thanks again to Matt for joining us. Uh, some good news, OG. Paying down the credit cards. I love it. Smart idea. Does uh, the fact that people are opening up, though, new increasing amounts of credit scare you at all? Well, it doesn't, except for the fact that there's likely to be a reckoning with that especially if it's lines of credit, because frankly, the bank can change that at any moment. I mean, we saw that during the recession. I mean, we, I saw it during COVID immediately. We had a credit card that we'd hardly ever, hardly ever, we've never used. We got it for the bonus points. It's at there. It was, you know, you put the mandatory money on it and you're done. $10 thing on every so often. So they didn't close the account. They sent us an email and said, yeah, we're reducing your line of credit from 20,000 down to 5,000 because you don't actually use it which is kind of sort of supported because we didn't really actually use it, but it's but also get at a jail card. Yeah. Sure. They, they totally did it just cause they're like, yeah, this is a low hanging fruit. We don't know what's up with this, this fellow over here. So we're just going to cut him off at the knees. And yeah. that's one of the detriments of using credit cards as your cash reserve, because it's like, Oh, I've got enough credit. They, you know, if I can cover any emergency, it's like, well, unless they take it away. It strategy drives me crazy. We have people in our basement Facebook group. By the way, if you want to join these discussions, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash basement will get you to the Facebook URL uh, quickly. So you can get in with 5,500 stackers, by the way, OG. Can you believe there's that many people? In the basement? They're like packed in here like sewer rats. <laughs> well, not I mean the Facebook basement, not, not yeah. He's like, oh. are they your invisible friends, Joe? <laughs> There's seven. Do you see all these people around you? Wow. Yeah. It looks really great. Hey, and, and if you're going to join us, make sure you shower. 
please. Because it is a talking to you, Bill. It's 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 a packed it's a packed house uh, here in the basement. But we we had a discussion. People going, ah, you don't need an emergency fund. It's funny when people have a sample set of one themselves. <laughs> they think that hey, there's nothing that could possibly go wrong because of my life. Exactly. Uh, when you have a larger sample size of people, you find out crap you didn't expect. OG goes wrong all the time. And while you can build a spreadsheet that proves that. You will never need it. What you don't know is that they'll take away your line of credit. Your crypto might go down on the same day. Those SOBs will get whatever they can get. 2007, 2008, everything went down together. It was quite a nightmare. Well, I think there's a lot of uh, takeaways here. Credit lines opening up while people are paying down their credit cards. That's good news. And then 401k balances rising nicely this year, OG. What's the takeaway? I really like people doing the right stuff. I'm happy to hear that. And this this was kind of our uh, drum beat for a while during the earlier parts of the of the pandemic when people were getting their uh, stimulus checks. We're like, ah, oh, they're going to blow it. That's what the people do. And, uh, you know, some people did for sure. But it looks like by and large, most people did the right thing. So that's awesome. That That is great. I will second that emotion. And I'm so happy to see that more and more people on the right path, which is great because, you know, we talk a lot about one-on-one planning here and setting up that foundation, but you and I both know, gee, that's not where the fun is, right? Yeah. The fun is once you get to some of the wealth planning stuff, that is, that is fun. It's fun to have goals that are beyond, hey, I reached my fire point, my financial independence retire early point. You get past that goal to thinking about something other than yourself it gets truly, truly exciting. Speaking of exciting, guess who's uh, guess who's here to do trivia? Take a time to move over and uh, clear out for uh, Mr. Doug. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. I'm glad that Joe will be talking to Luke Burgess soon because knowing a little about this stuff, all of you are about to learn lots of good lessons about your own philosophy. Over the years, I've really developed a high degree of intuition that allows me to be in control, total control of my mental state. It's really not that hard. I mean, for example, when I'm tired, I take a nap. When I'm hungry, I eat. Uh, then they probably eat again. Just listen to your body, stackers. Literally, my stomach tells me when it's time to eat. And sometimes I anticipate before it even makes a noise and I just keep eating. It's all about interbody communication. My eyes tell me when I'm tired. Uh, but uh, maybe this isn't as intuitive as I thought, which actually gives me a great idea, which I'll share after today's big trivia question. Here it is. The Ford Motor Company was incorporated on today's date all the way back in 1903. And Mr. Ford and his team dominated the automotive industry for decades. So today's question is, what automaker has the highest revenue today? I'll be back with your answer faster than you can start your engines. Hey, Stackers, did you know that with the More Rewards credit card from Navy Federal Credit Union, you can earn three times the points at supermarkets, food delivery, and gas, plus a point on everything else. If you pay your card off every month like you should, you will know that 3x points on things that you're using every day, 
That's uh, awesome. Plus, your rewards won't expire while your account's open. I've had that happen before. And you can redeem them for cash, travel, gift cards, and more. Plus, the more rewards card is contactless, so you can make payments quickly and securely with just a tap of your card. Speaking of rewards, you can also get a Navy Federal Auto Loan if you really need a car and get one. Applying is easy. You can do it on their mobile app, online, or by phone, and it's super fast. You're going to get a decision in seconds. Right now, rates are as low as 1.79% APR. Plus, with Navy Federal's car buying service, powered by TrueCar, which I have used and I love because you're going to save thousands of dollars. Who cares about the tiny interest rate? Use Navy Federal's car buying service powered by TrueCar, and you will save bundles of money. You can shop, compare, and save on your next new or used car. So whether it's your first car, your dream car, Navy Federal can help you cruise into a car you can afford it. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, open to the armed forces, the DOD veterans and their families like me. American Express is a registered service mark of American Express used by Navy Federal under license. Credit and collateral subject to approval, rates subject to change, and are based on creditworthiness, rate available for new vehicles. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information and to apply. Hey, Staggers is Military Appreciation Month. You know what that means. We are recognizing all of our stackers in the audience. My good friend Nords, Doug Nordman, who uh, some of you may know, he is a writer in personal finance. He's a guy I'd like to do a shout out to. He is such a giving member of the FIRE community, the Financial Independence Retire Early community. Uh, Nords will do anything for you. It's just, just, I think some of that comes from his time on a submarine, like my nephew Colin, who's on a submarine right now, and all the work that uh, he did there. Just a super giving member of the community. And you know what? A Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond, not this month, but every month. Navy Federal offers members only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Here's one of their offers in honor of Military Appreciation Month. Join and get $50 when you open a credit card. Of course, you want to have your whole debt strategy planned out, don't you? Don't just go open a credit card willy-nilly, as mom says. Uh, here's a disclaimer. you got to join and open your membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st, so get on it, stackers. Annual percentage yield is a 0.25% for membership savings account, $5 minimum balance to open. Maintain your membership savings account to obtain the bonus. Visit NavyFederal.org for full terms and conditions. That's just one of the things. They offer 24-7 help for their U.S.-based service members. They have resources all over the place. Head to NavyFederal.org for full terms, conditions, and other offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA Equal Housing Lender. Hey, trivia fans. It's me, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And as I was giving you my philosophy tips, it made me think. If you incredibly sharp and bright podcast listeners don't know these tips, then I bet most people don't. So for a limited time only, and for seven easy payments of $13.99, you can be the proud owner of the best-selling course, To Thine Own Self, Be True, which shares all of the inner circle tips about how I, Doug, excel in life and love. Don't worry. There's more than enough to go around, so I'll have the webpage for you later. Let's get on with the show so you can start taking my course to really and deeply know yourself just like I do. I mean, like, I, I, I don't know you, but I, I know you get it. Okay, our trivia question was, what automaker has the highest revenue today? 
based on 2020 revenue numbers. Coming in at number three is Daimler AG with $174.6 billion in revenue. At number two, it's Volkswagen at $247.4 billion. And last, you probably won't be surprised to learn that Toyota is number one with $248.6 billion in revenue. I think it's time for me to join those big revenue numbers and get my course listed online. I'll have a URL at the end of the show. For now, enjoy our interview with Luke Burgess. Well, on Monday, we talked about decoding greatness with Dr. Ron Friedman. One thing that will stop you from being great is always chasing after the I want, I want, I want, I want, especially when speaking with other experts on the home organizational side and on the behavior side, full well knowing that a lot of these wants, OG, are going to leave you frustrated and still feeling pretty unfulfilled. But why do we want stuff? Well, it turns out that according to our next guest, it's basic philosophy and how we are wired. Luke Burgess has not only spent a lot of time diving into why we chase these things that we think that we want, he's also been a serial entrepreneur. He's built four companies and actually had a big epiphany that I'm sure we'll talk about that led him into this quest to find out why. Why do we want all this stuff in our life? Why are we chasing what we're chasing? Let's say hello to Luke Burgess. And here he is coming down the stairs to the basement. Luke Burgess is here. How are you, my friend? Hey, Joe, I'm doing good. How about you? I'm great now that you're here. And by the way, I love absolutely love talking philosophy and we don't get to talk about like the structure of how people think and this this whole topic may seem kind of foreign to people what got you interested initially in mimesis yeah i'm a weird kind of an entrepreneur i was in the startup world and i've always been interested in ideas and i'm super weird and that I have a degree in philosophy and theology. So nice. I'm always like trying to get behind like what in the hell is actually going on in the startup world. And I thought, by mind? the way, I thought, by the way, Luke, that that was not to cut you off, but I always thought that that was psychology in college. So I started taking some psychology classes and I learned nothing except, uh, you know, the Pav Pavlov's dog and different therapies. And I didn't get that much. And then I transferred into a, a going after a minor in philosophy. And, and that was like the vein. I absolutely loved philosophy. Sometimes it just takes one thing, one idea, one Shakespeare play just to get you interested in something. And then you go down the rabbit hole. Right. And that's what it was for me. So I'm, I'm sitting here trying to get beneath the surface of just what's going on in the world that I was in, some of the forces that were driving me. And I came across this idea of mimetic desire from a French thinker. He's not actually not a philosopher. Uh, he's trained in history. And the idea was mimetic desire. And it really opened my eyes to a lot of the things that were happening in the startup world, uh, some of the decisions that I made from why I chose the major that I did in college to why I was living in Las Vegas in the first place and doing a lot of the same things that other people were doing. 
you know, so mimesis is just a fancy word for imitation. And it means that contrary to the way that we normally think about desire and why we want things, we're super social and imitative creatures as humans. And we very often are subconsciously imitating the desires of other people. It's so funny that you say that because it's this area that I'd never even considered. In fact, you say, and we'll get into the gentleman that you're talking about, uh, Rene Girard, and you, you say in your book that uh, we probably never heard of him. And as I'm reading your words, Luke, I'm going, yeah, I've never heard of him. And then I start diving in. I'm like, wow, this is, this is opening up a ton for me. I'm going to quote you, by the way. You say, and this is why we were attracted in having you on, is because – supposedly we're all about financial independence here. And you say, I spent my 20 starting companies chasing the entrepreneurial dream that Silicon Valley had enshrined with me. And I'm with you in that sentence. And then the next sentence you say, I was searching for financial freedom, comma, I thought, comma, and the recognition and respect that come with it. And it's that phrase, I thought I was after financial <laughs> freedom that made me go, I, I just stopped there, Luke, and I'm like, wait a minute. That seems to me like a path to financial freedom. What does the phrase I thought mean in there? And why was it then maybe not a, a path you were looking for? Well, I, I achieved a certain amount of financial freedom and I was just more miserable than ever. I had some success with one of my startups. I had also had a failure, but I had some success uh, in investing in my businesses. I was my own boss. I was the CEO. So I left a job on Wall Street to enter the startup world. I, I just thought I don't I don't do good with authority. Like I, I need to be <laughs> I need to be my own boss. And then I found out that once I was, I felt like less free than ever before. Like I was subject to other forces. They may not have been people, but I still felt like somebody was my tyrant. And what that somebody or something was was like the mimetic desire and looking around to my right and my left, constantly comparing myself to other entrepreneurs, other people in my life. I noticed like I'd go from one thing to another. I'm, I mean, I'm a hyper competitive person. I'm still a very mimetic person. And I just, no matter how much money I would have been able to make, it wouldn't have freed me from that sense that it's just never enough. Mm. And that's when I decided to just, Luke, you've got to step away. You've got to figure out why you're, you have this never satisfied striving, why you get really excited about one thing one year and then the next year you don't care about it anymore. You got to figure that out. And that's when I stepped back and I explored the ideas of Gerard. And more, and more money doesn't solve it. Does not solve it. Does not solve it. You walked away from a company that you had founded and said that was the biggest win of all of your companies that you founded, Luke. Yeah, I felt this strange sensation of relief after I had a blown up business deal. So I thought this deal was going to go through. We kind of had a handshake agreement. We actually had gone out and celebrated on the Las Vegas Strip this deal. But this was in the middle of 2008. And over the course of the next 24 hours, the board of the company that was going to acquire my company essentially just changed their minds. My initial reaction was, you know, devastation and like, oh, my God, this is embarrassing. I told people that I'm just I'm moving on to the next thing. But that sensation turned into a very odd feeling of relief. And the relief was me or having been freed of something that I probably wouldn't have been able to free myself of. And it's this, I had started a company that I really didn't even enjoy working at anymore. Didn't want to go into the office. I didn't believe in a lot of the 
products and services that we were offering. We just had mission creep. I was sort of like looking for a way out of it. But if I just kept finding validation and been given validation, who knows? I might have been doing that for 9, 10, 11 years and been totally miserable. So I think the relief came from me stepping back you know, creating some distance between myself and all of these things that I was so ambitiously like searching for uh, and, and realizing, hey, maybe this is an opportunity for me to figure out like the forces that are behind my ambition, like the GPS behind my ambition. It's funny you say that because when I was a financial planner, I would uh, have people come into my office and and I would ask them, you know, what are you trying to achieve? What are your goals? So we're not chasing after everything, Luke. We're just chasing this goal. And people would give me these goals that seemed to me to be I kind of refer to them as the Puritan ethic goals, you know, that, that we have this embedded thing, many of us, where we go, oh, I have to save for retirement. And if I have kids, I got to save for their college. So those are my goals. That's what I want. And there was really no passion behind those words. You know what I mean? And it kind of feels mm. like this with your company, like you're so indoctrinated into the success culture and the culture of the company that that was what you were chasing, but it wasn't, it wasn't really your thing. Yeah, we, there's an odd thing that we have where we think that because something is hard, it's automatically more valuable. It seems like we're more attracted to goals or pursuits if there are obstacles in our way. John Kennedy but, said it, right? We do, we go to the moon because it's hard, Luke. We go to the moon because it's hard. But if you think about it, some of the best things in life and we can become obstacle addicts and forget that some of the best things in life have the nature of a gift. I mean, I can tell you that my beautiful fiance, who I'm marrying next month, I did absolutely. I mean, it was a pure gift. Why she likes me, I, I don't even know. Um, but there were no no serious <laughs> obstacles in the way. Right. We, we fell in love. And I think that it's the danger. And so mimetic desire, the danger with it is that we're constantly attracted to things that seem just out of reach. And I'll tell you, Joe, that's a never ending game. And that's one of the biggest insights that I gained from understanding this force and the way that it works. Wow. Hey, before we dive into exactly how this works, this force that you're talking about, I want to take just a slight right turn because you you were selling this company to Tony Shea and to Zappos. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, Tony Shea passing away a few months ago, you got to know him. Since he's passed away, we've heard a lot about him, about how he he seemed at the end to some people. And this is, by the way, all third hand, Luke. It's, this is just reports that I've read that he he seemed kind of lost. Really, there were a lot of drugs in his later days. How much of that did you see? Did he seem lost did, or did he seem together when you were selling your company? I know this was a little bit earlier. I knew Tony the best from 2008 to 2010. So it was quite a while ago. I never saw drugs involved in the downtown project. I just saw a person who seemed like he was really, really searching, like a real searcher. And I think every entrepreneur kind of seeks transcendence in their own way. And I, I really saw a search for meaning and transcendence in Tony. And I, I didn't know him. I hadn't talked to Tony in years before I, I learned the, the tragic news of his passing. So I don't, I don't really know what happened at the end other than what I've read in the news. But it, it definitely seemed like from the, the day that I met him that he was he was searching for something. 
and um, just, you know, was never able to to get where he wanted to be, despite having obviously enormous success as an entrepreneur. So when I read the news, I, I thought, first of all, like how easily that could have been me. Yeah. And I feel sort of very lucky that these certain things happened that forced me to to step back because I was very, very much immersed in, uh, I mean, I knew Zappos very well. I was part of the down, I wasn't officially part of the downtown project. I was just the guy that was hanging around all the time. So I, I knew a lot of the people involved. That book, obviously for me, as, as much as any book was just so, so, um, it just seems so well-written and so refreshing to see somebody that looked at business the way that, that he did. You mentioned, by the way, a mentor suggesting that you look into this set of ideas that we're diving into now that would explain why you'd come to want all the things you wanted and how those desires entrapped you, you wrote. That, that, by the way, there's so much, there's, there's so much in that, that one little sentence. First of all, let's start off with the mentor. Tell me about you and mentorship. That's been a huge part of my life. That particular mentor was a new mentor for me. I was at a silent retreat a week-long silent retreat in the hills outside of Rome. So I was I was very lucky to be able to do that. It was in the context of that silent retreat. The only break from the silence was about 30 minutes a day where I would meet with a, re a retreat director who would sort of give me some things to think about. And I would tell him the things that were getting stirred up in me. Here's what's going on. I was trying to discern next steps. Like, what do I want to do with my life? If I'm going to start another company, what's it going to be? I had some vocational questions I was considering. And little did I know that this retreat director was a huge fan and scholar of Rene Girard, who uh, many years later, I ended up writing this book about. So he pointed it out to me and said, Luke, there's this guy you might want to read and this this idea that you might want to look into. Uh, silent retreat. I, I, as a guy who talks for a living, Luke, I can't imagine. I just uh, what, did you like it? Was it powerful? What did you learn? I do them every year. Do you really? So I started doing these around 2010. I try to take a minimum of five days. The first three days are basically just weaning myself off of the noise. It doesn't even really start until day four. And that tells you something uh, just about kind of how much the noise is inside of us. So it takes me three days to detox. That's why, you know, you have to go almost, at least me. Maybe it's different for other people, but I have to go for at least four or five days before I get the benefits. And then after the noise has subsided, meaning my mind, you know, just like 100,000 different thoughts I have during the course of the day, those start to subside. They start to turn into, I would call, um, just things that are a little bit more meaningful to me. Things get stirred up, like memories, things that I'd forgotten about. I start having these crazy dreams. And it's kind of like my version of a think week of Bill Gates, you know, but it's mm. different because I instead of just thinking about that, you know, the next thing that I want to do, I'm, I'm kind of discerning my desires and trying to figure out what's important to me. So I wish that everybody it's this is a luxury, I think, to be able to take that time but it's something that has changed my life. And I probably wouldn't know who Rene Girard is uh, if it weren't for that mentor. And I just encourage anybody, if you have the time to do it, put the device away for a few days. I mean, you can start with start with a day, you know, rent an Airbnb, just get, get out of town. And it's just amazing what will happen to you. Bring a good book. You know, it doesn't mean you can't read, but really try to detox from the tech. Well, and it's it's funny because I feel like from what I read from you about Girard, and what you just told me about silence and getting clarity, I think those two things go together. So let's dive in. To understand Gerard, you say we have to 
understand the difference between desires and needs. You think that's a good place for us to start, Luke? I think it's a really good place to start. Yeah. So Gerard says that all desire is mimetic, meaning it's imitative. Needs are different. So if I'm dying of thirst in the desert, I don't need to imitate anybody else's desire for water. I I have biological instinctual responses. If I see water, I'm going to drink it. So we have built-in radar inside of us for fulfilling our basic biological needs, survival instincts. If I'm cold, I seek warmth. This all happens really, really naturally. But after we get outside of this world of, of instinctual needs, into the universe of desire where things are more abstract. We're talking about stocks. We're talking about vacation destinations and brands, right? Where there's like not a lot of differentiation between things. Gerard says, well, we don't have any kind of instinctual radar that would direct us towards one object or another object. What we do have instead of instincts, we have another kind of radar and we find them in the form of other people. So we look for models of desire to help us know what is desirable and what's not. In other words, we look to our fellow humans, especially those who seem like they know what they want or seem confident or seem like they have something that we don't have. And they, these models of desire, become the most important factors in determining what we think is desirable. It's funny when you first wrote that, I thought, I thought, wow, who are my models? In fact, at the beginning of, uh, or at the end of chapter one, you even asked that question, uh, give it a name and write it down. What are your models? And, and, and I started thinking about these things and I thought about, you know, I, I loved a recent trip I took to Bavaria just before the pandemic. And, uh, that came from a video game that I played. It was completely a model. I loved everything in this. And it's crazy. It came from a video game, but it really was this, this model that I was trying to get into. And then I thought, and you point this out in the book with other people, every friend you have when they're 35 years old, they want to run a marathon. <laughs> well, Luke, I, I'll tell you, I was 33. All right. So, and, <laughs> Bad then, start. and then I ran 11 marathons, but it was completely because I moved to a different town and I was around a bunch of other people and all my friends were marathoners. So I was com- I was completely imitating what they did. And that was good. But it seems like this could go. I mean, this could go good. Right. Running marathons to some degree, I think, is healthy. On the other side, it could be really bad and go to some of our basis instincts. Well, that's a good example. And look what's happened with marathons. I mean, I, I've yet to run a marathon. I actually really want to. But the funny thing is, where does it end? I mean, now there's ultra marathons and they just keep getting longer and longer and longer. You know? Right. So no, my friends, yeah. my friends, my friends besides me graduated to ultra marathons. And by and large, by the way, most of them have quit because the ultra just I mean, it became this this, this absolutely silly race. I have a joke that if I, if I ever run 26.3 miles, something went seriously wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, fitness is a great example. I mean, why do people choose the modes of fitness that they choose? Why CrossFit versus, you know, a particular kind of class or whatever. And I think that mimesis has a lot to do with that. Like we tell ourselves a story that it's, you know, objectively the best or, you know, I read this article in men's health and it says, this is how I'm going to be able to, you know, get the abs that I want. But 
the models are more important than the facts, right? Who else is doing it is more important than whatever kind of objective facts that we can get. So the danger with mimetic desire is that we, we don't have boundaries. So this is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. You know, mimetic desire is how we learn. Um, it's how we build culture. It's got tremendously positive benefits. But if we don't see that we're getting caught up in rivalry, because it, it naturally leads to rivalry, right? If we're imitating the desires of other people, then we sort of made ourselves into rivals to them especially for certain kinds of things like in, in romantic situations, in jobs and things like this. Mimetic desire is kind of the root of rivalry. So the, the real key is just understanding limits, understanding when we're being driven by mimetic desire kind of excessively and just being aware of it so that we can say, whoa, 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 is this really what I want to do? Or am I doing this to prove to myself that I'm real? Because so-and-so did it, I need to do it too, or else I'm, you know, falling behind. Yeah. I'm, as I'm thinking about this, if I feel rivalry, but I'll just use myself as, as an example with another podcast, right? Another podcaster. How do I use this? Number one, I can call it out, Luke, but then what's my course of action if I feel a rivalry with some other podcaster? Not that, not that I can't think of one I do, but. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it, it just depends on kind of what stage it's at. Simon Sinek told a really funny story about his rivalry with another best-selling author. And uh, they got on the same stage with one another. And he really didn't like this other guy. And um, they both just like effusively praised the other guy and then said, you know what? You make me really insecure. <laughs> and they, <laughs> and, they, and they, they both admitted that about one another. And like now they're best friends. That's so... I, I think there's something to that, right? Just like acknowledging these things openly. Uh, chances are the other person might feel the same exact way that you do. You say that's why uh, Peter Thiel, another great Silicon Valley uh, name, uh, did that with Elon Musk. He did that with Elon Musk. Yeah, I mean, the two of them in the early days of PayPal, before it was called PayPal, they ran essentially competitive companies right down the street from one another. And they were just getting involved in a kind of a war that had no end. I mean, they were basically going to drive themselves bankrupt just to see the other fail. So mimetic desire and rivalry can cause us to do things that are not even in our self-interest. And I think this is what explains a lot of irrational behavior. And, you know, the way that Peter tells a story is he's like, listen, we both realized what was happening and that this couldn't continue and that we were going to have to join forces. So they kind of, you know, laid down their weapons. Uh, they eventually merged the companies. And you know, that's basically the root of PayPal. I mean, it's crazy to think about those two guys competing that fiercely. Right. Um, and the rivalry didn't end when they merged. I mean, there was still a lot of crazy stuff going on when you've got people, you know, people that ambitious. But Peter, as a student of Rene Girard, recognized this mimetic mechanism and rivalry at work in his own startup. And I don't know for sure who reached out to who, but I do know that Peter was aware of this and he sort of used that to defuse what would have just driven them both into the ground. That's what I, I feel is most powerful, Luke, about your book is that it's, it's good for pattern interrupt, right? You see a pattern coming and you can interrupt it and get yourself back on a more, uh, I don't know if cognizant's the right word, but a cognizant level to kind of put the train back on the tracks. Would you say that's true? 
I think pattern recognition is a beautiful way to describe it. I, I talk about two cycles in the book. One of them is a, a cycle of mimetic desire that leads to rivalry and eventually to all kinds of conflict. And if we see that we're in that cycle, it's just kind of like a bad cycle with your health or fitness, you know, like, ah, I drank too much tonight and the hair of the dog and that we can see the patterns and we can see the cycles. We can see earlier when we're going down the road. And we can take some steps to turn those into positive cycles, which I call cycle two, and actually just have some agency and intentionality in, in putting an end to the, the negative ones and taking small steps towards the positive ones. How have you seen identifying Gerard's work has, has changed your life? Because I'm sure on some level, people now get what you and I are talking about here a little bit intellectually. But behaviorally, what changes have you seen besides pattern recognition? In in my life or just in yeah. the world? Yeah. No, well, in your life and the world or either or. Yeah. I see mimetic rivalry in politics, right? In stalemate politics. And it's allowed me to kind of extract myself from getting caught up emotionally in that because I can sort of see see it for what it is a little bit better. It's allowed me to gain some distance from that. So, I don't you know, know what you're talking last, about. Do we have that in this country? <laughs> yes. You know, so the last <laughs> four or five years for me, I haven't been that bad, actually. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, obviously you see it in the market. I think, you know, trend following is the most mimetically driven investment strategy of all because you're kind of bracketing out a lot of things and paying attention to price action and movement, really mimesis. Uh, so I, I use that in small ways. You know, and in my own life, I'm just able to... I'm able to just kind of discern the, the forces and just understand, you know, where I need to pull back, what I need to lean into. And also in my relationships. I mean, this is a really important one. My, like we can become rivalrous with our own spouses, our own partners, uh, where we're kind of reacting to one another. And, you know, my my fiance, you know, Claire has probably heard more about mimetic desire than any human being <laughs> on the planet over the last two years. And, you know, she sees this and and she sees when we're imitating one another's, uh, you know, like aggression or annoyance or irritation or, you know, you didn't do the dishes tonight, so I'm not going to do the dishes. I mean, that's the form of negative imitation. I mean, that's a form of mimetic rivalry with, a, you know, that we're engaged in with the person I love. So I, I just be, being aware of that really allows us to, we joke about it, but it, it really does allow us to have a better relationship. It is so powerful. And one thing that I know from just studying philosophy a little is that if you don't have a framework you're working on all these competitive frameworks, right? The, the more I studied philosophy, the more I realized that people have these weird philosophies that are a mishmash of all kinds of stuff. And it's all subconscious and just bringing it up to the surface. I, I just, as I was reading the book, I just thought how powerful it is to have these stakes in the ground and to think, am I, even when you talk about financial freedom, am I, am I trying to achieve financial freedom or am I trying to be the best financial freedom person so I can brag to every, everybody else, which I feel like Absolutely. some, yeah, I feel like some people do. You have an analogy about this, which fortunately is true. You joined a flag football team and this has a lot to do with exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So I moved one of my startups from California to Las Vegas. I was a tax refugee, essentially uh, moved to Vegas <laughs> and I had never been into flag football in my life, but I got there and turns out that Vegas is like a flag football crazy city. Wow. I mean, everybody plays flag football. You go play before the, you know, the football game start on Sunday. So 
I all of a sudden just caught the desire to play flag football by contagion, really. And all of a sudden, I'm like a huge flag football fanatic. I'm looking around for a team to join. And my mom says, hey, one of my old high school friends, I think, uh, has a son about your age. Why don't you ask him if he has a team? So I reach out to him. They put us in touch. Our moms put us in touch. And I reach out to him and he says, hey, yeah, we're looking for one more guy on our flag football team. Why don't you show up? So I show up to the first practice of this team and I'm looking around. All of the guys are extremely, incredibly good looking, incredibly tall and muscular. And they all happen to have Australian accents. See, you fit right in except the Australian accent. Exactly. Like, well, you didn't tell me I'm a worst looking guy on the team. (laughs) So I, I show up to this thing and come to find out I had been invited to be a member of the Thunder from Down Under flag football team. <laughs> and I learned that all of these guys come over to the, to the U.S. Uh, and if you don't know the show, Google it. It's a very, very popular <laughs> show in, in Las Vegas. They come to the U.S. and the same thing happens to them. They all they come to Vegas and they all realize, hey, let's play flag football. Extremely athletic. So I, by the way, I was also the least athletic guy on the team. These guys are incredibly athletic <laughs> and do all kinds of crazy things after they after they score, you know, a touchdown or whatever. And they were all like former rugby players, just incredibly talented. So that was my mimesis and their mimesis meeting, uh, which made for a pretty pretty funny story for me to tell. You felt some mimetic rivalry. I felt some mimetic rivalry, exactly. <laughs> the, the book is called Wanting the Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. And I'm assuming, Luke, you can get it anywhere. You can get it anywhere you like to buy books. Yep. Luke, thanks a ton for hanging out with us and, and talking about desire. It's so interesting. We have no idea what we want and why we want it. And uh, I thought this was a very powerful framework to help us get a handle on that. Thanks so much, Joe. Really good to be with you. Big thanks to Luke. It's funny, you and I, I was uh, yesterday introducing you to this topic at lunch about what Luke was going to talk about with us today, OG. And it's weird that we want these things because other people want them and people that we respect and we have as mentors want them. And I love the idea of calling it out, right? Who do you take your cues from? And the first step toward recognizing what you want and why you want it is figuring out who you look up to. And then you start to get a get an idea. Oh, these people play golf, so I want to play golf. Or these people like playing train games on their Xbox. So nope, I nope, like playing there, train there games none of those people. on my Xbox. Those people don't exist. That's it, but one does. <laughs> you. <laughs> I don't know where the hell I got that. <laughs> I mean, you're a ninja on that thing too, by the way. Reach it all the way across the table. I have to admit, too, that I had never really thought about why I want some of the weird things that that I want or why you like some of the stuff that you like. You know, I look at things like hiking, growing up, doing a lot of hiking, mm-hmm. playing cards because, you know, mom plays cards and it, it it's kind of in, in our family. Uh, it also has to do with why I like games is because I've been playing games since I was a little kid. He's right on. As kids, we learn to mimic, right? And we're great at at mimicking. Even before we can speak, we're mimicking other people and socializing. Well, that's why things like uh, baby sign language and stuff like that is so important. You know, we use that for our kids. It's just like they get the idea of like, here's how I can communicate. 
And some of this is communication as well. You know, I, I think that it's okay to, you know, in the wanting department, you know, I kind of think about it from the perspective of it's totally fine to want anything that you want to have. And I don't owe anybody an explanation as to why, but I think the message is be sure that you need to be sure you know why you want stuff. Exactly. I, th- I think you owe it to yourself yeah. to know why. Absolutely. No, you're right. Not to anybody else. Hey, I'll play my train game on the Xbox. That is fine. But the fact that I don't know why I want to play the train game on the Xbox is a whole different thing. Maybe there's some therapy coming. Maybe. Who who knows? Choo choo. I think the bigger problem is is when things that you think that you want right now get in the way of the big goals, right? And you haven't thought about why I want these little things that constantly because how many times have you met with people? I used to meet people all the time that would always have these things that come up that get in the way of going after the thing they told me they really wanted. And when you push them on it, they still say they want this big thing, but you can never get them to go after it. Mm-hmm. And that was a frustration. Too scary. I don't know what it is. If if that was it, or if um, if they never analyze these little things that are in the way. But you're right. There's some correlation there. Great discussion, and one that although I love that discussion, I think we've only begun to scratch the surface on. Hey, let's throw out Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. OG, our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. I don't have anything compelling to say. I'm out of ideas. So you're going to have to just roll right through it. (laughs) You're done. I'm out. (laughs) Is that where you tap the table? (laughs) Uh, He's he's completely tapped out. It's gone. The bad news is it's only Wednesday and you're tapping out. Oh, yeah. You could at least wait till the Friday show to get, you know, to the magnify Mm -hmm. money call. But okay. All right. Well, uh, it's your loved ones and your time, OG. And that's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. All these years have we had you tap out yet? I don't think I think that's the first time. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now for a free quote. Their application's simple. It's online. You'll get an instant coverage decision. Prices are affordable. You don't have to wait several weeks. Not going to fill in a bunch of junk that nobody's going to look at. Man. I absolutely get frustrated reading some of those. When we moved back to Texarkana, I had to fill out some new medical forms, OG. And a lot of these medical forms, you're like, nobody's going to read this stuff. And by the way, when you ask for my name three times on the same damn form, really? Like who decided so to, frustrating. Who decided to, for me to have to put my name in two separate places? But why do I have to sign the front and the back? Why can't I just sign for the front and the back one time? Well, Haven Life's thought of all of that. And you'll find that between that and their really lovely customer support, uh, great way to buy life insurance. StackingBenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life. All right. Today, let's uh, throw out the Haven Lifeline to our friend, Julia. Say hello, Julia. Hi, Joe. This is Julia. I'm calling because I wanted to get your opinion on something that my advisor has recommended I switch to, and that's an actively managed account with several different mutual funds. I have an issue with the actively managed part, but that's a different discussion. The way that he recommended this portfolio was based on something he called the modern portfolio theory. I've looked it up. It's very complicated. And I was hoping that you could provide some insight into how this portfolio theory works and how it should be applied to someone's investments. 
I have a second question, and that is with regards to another recommendation from my advisor. He advised that I get whole life insurance for my kids. They are now almost 9 and 11, in good health, no chronic conditions, and my family also doesn't have any long-term conditions or chronic conditions. And he suggested that I get this so that they will have insurability when they're older. So in case something happens between now and adulthood, they can be guaranteed eligibility for insurance coverage. And I wanted to get your opinion on that as well. Thanks for your time. Hope you have a great day. Wow, Julia, fantastic questions. By the way, I love talking modern. I do. And I'm not kidding when I say this. I love talking modern portfolio theory. In fact, in in my book, OG, I've got a whole section talking about modern portfolio theory because I think it's not as hard as all these big words make it out to be. However, actively managed funds, a little modern portfolio theory, throw in some whole life insurance for the kids. What's not to like, OG? Oh, I didn't know that I was supposed to participate. She said that she needs your advice on it. Well, so. you know, I mean, she she knows who's in charge. Just like at home, you're not in charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, our one-year contract is coming up too, so. You're not going to pass. <laughs> you better be on the best behavior. It's the other way around, sweetheart. Bring it, man. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Oh my goodness gracious. Uh, it's like strike half. And then, and then you go, Oh yeah, those are two other called strikes right in the back end. You yes. know what I mean? It's like at the, the, the first thing, I mean, I, I guess the way that I would think about this is I, I need more information on the actively managed modern portfolio. Th- like if this is just something that's going to be, Hey, we've got some funds that we think are going to do well or have had some success in the past. And we, put it all together and we manage it in an asset allocation and we manage it to these tolerances, whatever, like, that's fine. That's no better or worse than any other thing. Frankly, the, the, like, I'm going to put everything in Vanguard total market index, get your ass kicked too. If you don't pay attention because, well, you don't have any small company funds. So guess what? You got smoked and you didn't get, you know, and then what happens with that? is that people take that information and then go do the wrong thing with it. I'm just blown away by this, by the debate about this active versus passive thing or the low cost versus high cost. And like, you're a total idiot if all you do is have anything other than Vanguard Total Market Index. What's comical is that I bet nine times out of 10, those people are trading the hell out of their target date funds or their total market index fund because, hey, guess what? It sucked compared to the tech fund that their buddy had. So they're going to go get the tech index fund. And then, oh, that didn't do so great in the last eight months. And I'm going to get the small cap fund. So, you know, anyways, soapbox moment for a second. But I have no problem with the investment portfolio, actively managed, not actively managed, blah, blah, blah. Who gives a crap? Like, that's fine. You pair that with the same the same person who then also said your nine year old needs life insurance unless your nine year old and and I mean we say this a little bit in jest but I was gonna say unless your nine year old is providing for the family which in today's day and age you could have a YouTube star be like well that dude is bringing in three fifty a month three hundred fifty thousand a month pitching crap on the YouTube you know I wish my kids would get on on it they nobody will watch my stuff I'm like you have to make videos so nobody watches our stuff yeah come on. <laughs> We still do it. Uh, it's about time on YouTube, not timing YouTube. Exactly. Right. Yeah. If you need life insurance, you need it because you're supporting somebody. You have some obligations to fulfill in, in, in the future. A nine-year-old has no obligations to fulfill in the present nor the future. 
based on where they are in the standard of their life. And not to mention it's utter and complete bullshit. What he said about insurability, you're not getting future insurability. You're getting that policy forever, which unless you're planning to buy your kid, a I don't know, $8 million whole life policy, because that's about what they'll need in 30 years from now when they're like 40 and they've got their own kids and all that sort of stuff because of how inflation works. There's what the hell are you going to do with a $25,000, you know, whole life policy? Yeah. It's like, it's like, oh, well, yes. I've got this $25,000 one. Turns out I'm sick. It, you, you don't get to get more because you have it. That's my point. This is the problem, Julia, that OG's talking about. You can't raise that death benefit without going back to the insurance company and having to prove future insurability. So if he goes for, to use OG's number, $8 million more to cover him for what the future need might be when he really needs the policy, that would be one thing. A $25,000 whole life policy, he's never going to need. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's rounds to zero. Yes. Or 50,000 or 100,000 or whatever insignificant number that he's trying to sell you so that they get some wicked ass commission on the first year's premium. There's nothing about any of that statement that is true. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, uh, 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 yeah. Oh God. It's just makes me throw up in my mouth. So because of that, then I also discount the the first thing. everything. Yeah. It's like, you're okay with that. And I can let that go. These other two make me, make me, you know, I mean, you should find somebody new. It's total crap that, you know, your nine-year-old and 11-year-old need life insurance. This is, I guarantee hand to God, that's a $2,000 a year premium. And this dude was straight up like, oh, I want to go to the beach, rent the condos like four grand. I'll call Julia. She'll buy this whole life policy and then I can get the Harley or whatever, you know, a little I mean, slimy thing. Ah, makes me mad. It, it, it does. It makes me so. I mean, think curious. of it this way. Like, let's say that you've got. You know, you've got your regular term insurance. She's, you know, you're, you're, you're doing your thing. You got your, you know, a million dollar term insurance and you go, man, I figured out new numbers. I need to get 3 million. Do you just get to go to the, you know, you go and jump on Haven and go, yeah, sorry, I need another 2 million. They don't just go, oh, okay, great. Oh, cool. Cause guess what? Ha- like, why do people suddenly need more life insurance? Why is that? Oh, I know. It's because their health has made a change for the worse. And they're like, I need to get as much of this as I can. Insurance companies aren't stupid. They know that that's happening. So they go, Whoa, can we get your height and weight and blood work again? Your doctor. The number notes? one time people would ask me for disability insurance when I was an advisor yeah. was when they just had some diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Can I get this? Uh, no. No. Two I days don't. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Or any of the other 64 times that I've talked about it with you. Yes. Would, would have been acceptable. But uh, anyways. But you know what's funny about this, OG? Julia knew this already. And I'm and, and I'm not yeah, kidding, because yeah. that's the reason she called us. Of course. She called us because in her head, it just didn't make sense. No, in her soul, it didn't make sense. Well, and that's the key, too, is a lot of the time you trust that feeling, right? You go, you know, there's just something off. And at the very least, if it's off... Talk to your advisor about, I'm not sure what's off, but we need to have more of a heart to heart. Cause if we're not on the same page and it's not a fit, it, it doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. If you're calling a third party, us third and fourth party, I guess, and Mr. Cooper sitting here too. So third, fourth and fifth party to ask our take on it. Then, then you know that it's, that mm-hmm. it's, it, it's, even if it is right, it might not be right. Please let me call this guy. Please let me do it. <laughs> I want to answer modern portfolio theory just briefly, OG, because of the fact that I find this really exciting. 
So modern portfolio theory, guys, is this uh, cool thing based on uh, research done by a gentleman named Dr. Harry Markowitz. What's neat about Markowitz, by the way, one of my favorite fintech apps called Acorns, Harry Markowitz was an advisor to that company. Did you know that, by the way? Uh, yeah, I think I knew that. Yeah, yeah. it's a, pretty cool. So uh, what Markowitz looked at was this. He noticed that given time and different tax treatments, so different time frames, different tax treatments, some asset classes, some types of investments would wiggle a lot and others would wiggle not very much. And also he noticed that some had on the average of that wiggle, you could expect kind of a high rate of return, others a low rate of return. So on the east-west axes, he showed volatility. And on the north-south axes, he showed returns. So as an example, small company value stocks are going to be out and to the right. And cash is going to be low into the left. And I don't know if on an audio podcast that makes a lot of sense, but as risk goes up, so does returns. However, this, up to a point. Yeah, this rule that we've heard of called diminishing returns, right, comes directly from this that you can take more and more and more risk and you ain't going to get a lot of return for it. So he looks at all these different investments in different pies. So think of it first all large company stocks are a are a dot, all small company stocks are a dot, international stocks are a dot. And then he started mixing them, maybe 30% bonds, a certain type of bonds, let's say treasuries, and 70% large companies, that produces a different dot that's going to be down and left of the large companies by itself dot. And he fills up this whole thing with dots. And what he finds is that there's this imaginary line called the efficient frontier, which initially goes pretty north-south. But as it curls to the right, it goes more and more and more horizontal and less up and down. And what that means, again, going back to what OG mentioned a second ago, is that you can take more and more and more risk, go further to the right, and you're not going to get the payoff for it that you did initially. However, most of us have portfolios that are pretty damned inefficient. And when I would look at these, when I was an advisor, I would plot somebody's dot where they were, and they were generally below this line. And we had two basic things we could do. Well, we really had three OG, but let's go over the first two. The first one is, if you're getting the return you need to reach your goals, why not take a lot less risk getting it, right? I mean, how great is that, that you can get the same return, but have a less bumpy ride? And to do that, you just move the dot to the left less risk. And then you see what assets make up that pie of investments that are on the line, getting the same return that you get. And by the way, it makes it also really easy for you to see what you should keep and what you should sell. It is super, super simple. And I know it doesn't sound simple at first, but this is not complicated stuff, but it gives you this look at historically what has gotten you there with less risk. Or if you're sleeping well at night, right? You're not worried about the risk in your portfolio, but you want higher returns, well, you can move your dot up instead of moving left for less risk, move it up to get higher returns, but no more risk than you're taking today. By the way, that's the second one. I mentioned there's three. The third one really is my favorite. Look at your plan. Look at what return you need over time and then place the dot on that imaginary efficient line and work with that. That's going to be separate from those two points. But it makes it super easy for you to, instead of having to know a lot about everything, to only have to know about those few investment 
choices that got you to your goal. I think so many people worry a lot about knowing this huge wide spectrum of investments. And it's really frustrating to see investors get frustrated because they're like, there's so much to know. There is, but you don't have to know everything. You just got to know what gets you there. And so using the efficient frontier and this modern portfolio theory to do that is great. I think you said something there that I, that I don't want to gloss over because it's a great question to ask for anything, whether it's Julia and her conversation with her advisor moving forward or any of us as we're thinking about implementing new ideas or tools or whatever, which is how is this going to help me reach my goals? And if you say that and get a answer that is satisfactory, then you know you're on the right path. If you said, okay, I'm looking at this, you know, investment model that you want us to use and how does this help us reach our goals? I mean, you should be pretty clear. Oh, it's going to do this, 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 this. And I think you're going to get a better this, 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 than this. And, and to your point, that conversation probably should start with, well, based on your plan, your plan says we need an 8% return. This is historically the mix of assets that got you there. Yeah. And if it starts with the phrase based on your plan, right? it's great. Yeah. Now I ask that same question for why does my, my, you know, freaking second grader need the whole life insurance? How does this help us with our plan? Uh, well, it helps me with my plan. Future insurability, OG. But how does that help me with my plan? That's where the future insurance... Well, then she's not going to have to help her kids subsidize their life insurance later because of future insurability. How does it help? Exactly. <laughs> Such a lie. It's gross. McFly. Oh, it's yeah. so gross. Uh, uh, Julia, the cool thing is, is you're right. You can go to a lot of websites and uh, that talk about modern portfolio theory. We also, in the guide to today's show, we put a couple great resources that we like to look at modern portfolio theory and the efficient frontier for people that want to look, by the way, for guides to the show, to sign up for those, it's stackingbedjamins.com forward slash stacker. Not only will it give you the guide, but it also gives you uh, weekly lessons about uh, money mistakes that people make. And we take you through all six areas of your financial plan. Great questions, Julia, and I'm so happy that you that you called. And if you want to ask uh, us about the active versus passive thing, we're happy to do that another day. If you've got a question for OG and I, head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. And you know what? If you're brave like Julia was, send us a voicemail. We are sending Julia a code for a greatest money show on earth piece of Stacking Benjamins swag. So Julia now can fondly remember the time that OG got all frustrated with her advisor answering her question. You too can have that moment. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. Hey, a couple things before we go. Number one, if you are a fan of this show, we need reviews. If you like the show, big thanks for anybody who's taken time out of their busy schedule to leave us a five-star review. That tells so many people that you like the Stacking Benjamin Show, almost like you leave a great review for a restaurant that you like on Yelp or on Trip. I don't use Yelp. I use TripAdvisor, and I will leave great reviews for those restaurants. Same thing goes here. As the playing field for podcasts gets bigger and bigger, the more we need our fans to help us out. If you like the show, head to iTunes or wherever you listen and uh, leave us a review. Second, you can also listen to us on smart speakers. Just say the name of the device, which I won't do, and uh, listen to us wherever you're at. 
pretty cool that that is set up. And last, and definitely not least, if you're like, you know what? I need better financial planning help in my corner. OG and his team are taking clients. So head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG, and that will lead you to OG and his team's calendar. And that's the first step. You'll then meet with them and talk about how they can interface with you so you make better investing and money decisions. All right, that's going to do it for today. Anything else, OG, before we sign off? No, I'm good. What else do you need? Just just wanted to check just in check and make in. sure. Yeah, because I got a little fiery at the end. Well, well, and I usually I usually just go into the end, and then sometimes you're like, man, I could I had this one great line. Yes. No, nothing. And I, I, I didn't let you have your moment. So uh, there it is. All right, that's going to do it. Doug, here you go, man. Uh, what should we have learned today? Sure thing, Joe. I'll give you a hand. Hey, everybody. Here's what you should have learned today. First, take a lesson from our headline. You don't know what the market has in store, and past performance definitely doesn't indicate future results. So stay the course. Second, take a lesson from Luke Burgess. At Our Nature, we copy others. So identifying who and what you're copying is the first step to understanding why you want what you want. Maybe your goals will change or the way you reach them will change when you realize why you're after a particular shiny goal. But the big lesson? I was just about to give you the URL to buy my amazing course, To Thine Own Self Be True, the story of how you can share in the Doug philosophy on life. When Joe reminded me that I need to actually make my world-renowned best-selling course before I can sell my world-renowned best-selling course. Huh. That's that's probably a, a good point there, Joe. One of those uh, uh, horse-before-the-cart situations, I suppose. Anyway, I should have put these points in order before I just started talking. I should probably should do that more often. Make course, then sell it. Make course, then sell it. Anyway, I got it. Good talk, everybody. Good talk. Okay. Okay. I'm learning. We're all learning. We're growing. We're becoming better people. Here's what I just figured out. I should probably give you the credits for the guest before we actually end the show. Wow. I'm I'm getting the hang of this after like a thousand and fifty episodes or something. Anyway, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. To learn more about our guests and for more resources, you can head to our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. To learn more about your own personal philosophy around life, money, and why you want what you want, check out Luke's new book, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life, wherever books are sold. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2021, and is created by Joe Saul Cihai. Our producer is Karen Rapine. The show is written by Taylor Stevens with help from Joe and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. After you listen, check out our show notes page written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. Brooke and Joe also collaborate on a guide to the show and with lots of extras we couldn't include on today's podcast. Heck, they'll also throw in some life money lessons from Joe and it's all free. It's called The Stacker and you'll find it at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Once we get all of this goodness bottled up, it goes over to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart, who helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. 
Want to talk about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is the room mother in our Facebook group, The Basement. She also is our social media coordinator, so say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. She and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. For a URL that'll take you right to our Facebook group, by the way, type stackingbenjamins.com forward slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, leaving you with this safety tip. Don't substitute your gym's spin class with your dryer's spin cycle. Believe it or not, they are not the same. Welcome to the after show. This is a part of the show that doesn't exist. What happens in the after show stays in the after show. If you're new here, welcome. First and second, if you have to talk about it, we've had people that have accidentally talked about it. Call it dessert. If you if you must talk about it. If the stuff we're gonna discuss today is so good, you have to tell somebody, talk about dessert. But this comes to us from Oddity Central. You know the world has gone mad when you see people making money off of cryptos that you and I both know are never going to be worth anything. And memes. People running up a mediocre movie theater and a brick and mortar video game store that people don't frequent very much. Running up the prices in these stocks. That's one thing. This is next level. What I'm about to share world's first invisible sculpture. OG just sold for $18,000. Quite a bargain. All things considered. We should make an invisible podcast based on that. I mean, I just hope that the person who bought it has, I mean, obviously has more money than brains, but like literally has like just so much that it doesn't even matter. I think it would be, it would be awesome. An invisible sculpture created by Italian artist Salvatore Garo, recently acquired by a private collector, paid 15,000 euros for it during an auction. If you're one of those people who just can't understand how somebody could pay large sums of money for digital assets like video game skins, accessories, or increasingly popular NFTs, then the sale of this immaterial sculpture is really going to do a number on your brain. The piece says titled I am. I, I th- it should be titled. I am not. Isn't it? The invisible. See, it's already got me talking. The sc- <laughs> I'm already digging into what this is about. The invisible work of art basically represents a void, a technically empty space that is actually occupied. OG ready for this by the energy of the sculpture. 
Well, yeah. Okay. Makes sense. <sighs> People are so dumb. So how does one keep an invisible sculpture? The piece asks. I've often wondered, do, do you need a, do you need a visible room for your invisible sculpture? I get, I'd get some very visible divorce papers. That's what I would get. <laughs> Honey, guess what I got? Guess you? what we've got? I got us a, a sculpture. She'd be like, oh God, of what? <sighs> Anything you want it to be, sweetheart. It is a bargain at 18000 You ready? You ready? Where do you keep an invisible sculpture? It's, it's, it, it's the perfect gift. The artist suggests storing the artwork in a special room in a space free from obstruction of about uh, 150 by 150 centimeters. That's 4.92 by 4.92 feet. Special lighting and climate control, of course, are optional since I am is immaterial. The successful outcome of the auction testifies to an irrefutable fact the void is nothing but a space full of energy. And even if we empty it, nothing remains, according to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that nothingness has a weight, Salvatore Garo said. It therefore has energy that condenses and transforms itself into particles. In short, in us, when I decide to exhibit an immaterial sculpture in a given space, that space will concentrate a certain quantity and density of thoughts in a precise point, creating a sculpture that for my title alone, will take the most varied forms. After all, don't we give shape to a God we have never seen? I don't have my, uh, my Homer thing. Mine, one, mine says, uh, can you repeat this stuff where you said about, about the, the things? things. <laughs> How do you get that notoriety? I would love to, be, to have enough notoriety that, hey, you can bid on our empty podcast. No, no, no. What's the chance that the collector who bit is just this dude? He's just, he's, he handed somebody 15,000 I mean, euros. Also, who else bid against him? I mean, was it a, was it like a Sotheby's where it's like, everybody's got the paddles and they're yelling out the, that's uh, my terrible auction, auctioneer voice. But, you know, <laughs> Or was there like literally one dude going, yeah, whatever, bro. I'll give you like 15 grand for it. And we did get a picture that was shredded immediately at auction. That was, at least that had something to it, right? Yeah. Story. This, it, this it, is a story. Yeah. They're saying that this beats the uh, banana duct taped to the wall, which sold for $120,000. Sometimes I wonder how I'm so dumb to have not thought about any of this, you know, like to, like how did I not think about, I don't know. Your future. I mean, I could do, I could do so much with this information. <sighs> I gotta go. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout-outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend OG, who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. 
Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.